Vintage Stories is sponsored by CariWine.com. That's K-A-U-R-I. Cori? Cari? I've been told a few different ways I should say it. But anyway, if you go to their YouTube page, Kari Winemaking Innovation is their handle on YouTube. They've got some instructional videos. And basically, overall, they are technical experts uh, and more than just suppliers. They're available as a soundboard to problem solving. Uh, just give one of their sales reps, like good old Dean Wishart, uh, a buzz, and he'll help you out through it. I use a lot of their uh, products, including Firm Control, which I know is used uh, throughout New Zealand. I use it in conjunction with yeasts. Uh, they have some fantastic organic yeasts. Again, it's certified organic products. Uh, no question about where you can export that. Uh, and still maintain your organic certification. I use it on Chardonnay, Viognier, Chenin, Pinot now as well. Uh, I do wild ferments on most of the Malbecs. So that's probably the only reason why I'm not using it on that. I would love it on these white wine ferments. Keep these uh, real nice, cool, steady temperatures. Uh, and yeah, firm control, sort of clean up any problems you have, but uh, great organic nutrient for your ferments. So check them out, kariwine.com, K-A-U-R-I, wine.com. back man i feel like it's been so long since i did this um and it's been shit six months or something i don't know maybe seven months uh but the funny part is is i've got most of these recorded already i just kind of have to keep you guys updated and release them every week do the intros and outros and man it's going to be such a cool season it's going to be some shorter episodes in there not not this one with uh jen parr from bali wines who we uh who i had the pleasure of talking to about a month ago when she was up in hawks bay and it really ties into um yeah stories vintage stories this is a, a really interesting story jen has and how she's ended up uh being the winemaker at you know, arguably one of the, the top wines, uh, you know, wineries in the country, certainly one of the most highly respected and highly rated wines uh, in, uh, you know, by the press and media, but also, you know, you talk to winemakers and viticulturists and things like that, and you go, damn, those volley wines are good. <laughs> but yeah, the rest of the season we have is tremendous, most of which will come out of the organic wine festival that I went down to about a week and a half ago and just blew my mind. You know, I've been doing this podcast for years now since 2011 or 12. I can't remember when I started. So yeah, six, seven years sort of changed around sporadic interviews here and there. And a few years ago, I sort of revamped it all and refocused and really focused on New Zealand and really take a look at what I was doing with this podcast and I renamed it Vintage Stories because it, it really seemed to be all about the stories of these people that I'm talking to and my curiosity, uh, which led me to do this and that there's so many interesting people and there's a lot of things that I want to learn. So it's sort of my way 
of uh, crossing the line and talking to people that I normally wouldn't have a chance to talk to. And at this organic wine festival, man, it was like, I don't know, it's like I found my tribe or something. I just talked to so many people. Every single person I reached out to agreed to do the podcast, which was, was amazing. I probably only missed out on one person, and I, I think I will hopefully get to talk to her at some stage. But it was really just time. That was the only reason why we couldn't do it. I was doing these podcasts in between on you know coffee breaks and lunch breaks and after the festival or after the conference was done before we had our evening events. So uh, I want to thank all those people who did it. And you guys will see the names as they come out. There's some some pretty knowledgeable, I don't want to say heavy hitters, but some, some people I was real honored to speak to. Uh, so... Uh, you know, that being said, I almost didn't want to advertise or something for this one, certainly advertise my own wines. Uh, and then I had to think about that. And I thought, well, that'd be crazy. This decibel wines is actually what's paid for this whole thing. So I'll do a quick plug for that. Uh, if you go to decibelwines.com, use the podcast DB podcast, you get 10% off your first order. Uh, a lot of our wines, speaking of organic, are in transition. A lot of the vineyards we're dealing with, and I'm speaking with BioGrow about doing our uh our certification which i hope you know we're we're in the works but you know there's these big steps you got to take to do it and uh but yeah decibel wines we have the the viognier sauvignon blanc rosé award-winning pinot noir and always interesting and fun gibble gravels malbec so check those out we got some new ones up there like the testify gibble gravels red uh uh, Junta Pinot Gris, you know, some of the Junta wines are only available to the trade just because they sell out really quick. But if you shoot us an email, we might be able to find you one. And uh, yeah, we got some Chenin Blanc in the mix under the Junta range. So lots happening with Decibel Wines. And uh, thankfully, because uh, we don't make any money on this podcast, uh, that's enabled me to do this podcast by traveling a little bit and interviewing some very interesting people. Starting with uh, Jen Parr, who's got a great story. Uh, we're fellow Americans who ended up in New Zealand uh, in very different manners, though we did sort of come to terms with some uh, or come to meet at some familiar places. And, you know, uh, it can be a small world when you get into the wine world. But it was great talking to her. And I hope you guys enjoy it. Jen Parr, thanks for doing it. Sorry, you said Portland, Oregon, you were born. Yes. So I was in Portland until I was about 18 and then went to California to go to university. Which school was that? I went to Stanford. Oh, cool. So um, it was kind of, a lot of people think because I grew up in Oregon, that was when I started my wine path, but yeah, it's yeah. actually quite a coincidence, even though I was only about 45 minutes away from, you know, world-renowned sure. wine growing. Um, my family weren't big drinkers well at least not wine so yeah. i didn't really discover wine until i went to california well i think um you know i'm guessing you're around the same age as me it was still wasn't in our face as much the wine industry now like as it is as it is as it, it wasn't in our face back then as much like i didn't even really drink california wine and i grew up on the east coast yeah 
but it wasn't just in the ether as much as it is now where it's like everybody knows so much about wine True. when you travel around now, but you know, I don't know, you know, sort of eighties into the nineties, it wasn't like a thing all the time. They were, if you were lucky enough to know somebody who was in it, then maybe you were, but I understand that. Yeah. You know, that it wasn't necessarily around as much, you know, and what was happening at Stanford when you were there? Uh, I don't know the coming of age stuff, getting yeah. away from home and, um, yeah, I didn't really, well, when I arrived at Stanford, I thought I wanted to become a lawyer. And then I quickly decided I didn't really want to do that. And then I thought I might want to be a politician. <laughs> oh, uh, really? Me too. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, And the reason was I thought it was a good way to help people. Mm-hmm. And then I decided maybe I should be a teacher. But I wasn't sure that I had the patience for kids who didn't want to learn. And those are the ones that you probably needed to reach out to the most. So it's, it's a calling. Sure. <laughs> and I'm full of a family of teachers as well. So I thought um, it might be kind of interesting to break the mold. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I enjoyed language and reading and um, and writing and debating and speaking. So I just studied English language and literature. And Stanford being known for its um, engineering and medical and law and, you know, nowadays sort of... Um, computer side of things um that's kind of what i was getting at was it all the it was probably the beginning of the boom not to try to date you too much no it was and and unbeknownst to many they have this amazing liberal arts aspect in stanford as well and so i had um exposure to some great professors i mean some of i think all around some of the smartest people in the world in that area there so why not yeah exactly and you would have would you had any I would imagine you would have had the trickle down of sort of the, I don't know, hippie movement of the 60s and into the 70s of some of the smart people that came out of that. Exactly. We're still at Stanford then, you know, because it's that part of the country, you know? Yeah, at Stanford or at Berkeley, just over the bay. Um, So I just threw myself into uh, literature and language. And I had taken Spanish since I was a child, so I incorporated that into... um, my English literature major because you had to have a focus and I thought about doing sort of Renaissance American literature or I love Shakespeare but because I'd taken all this Spanish language I could focus on what it was called Spanish American literature which Mm. basically meant that I read a lot of Realismo Mágico and I studied for a term in Chile and um, and that kind of thing so but I did end up going into the tech industry though (laughs) oh you did yeah uh well, wait a minute. Hold, let's back up. Let's not get too fast. What do you have? Some favorite writers in there? I mean, are you uh, the best? I think the best American novel isn't even from what we some people call America. Is Hundred Years of Solitude? Yep, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yeah. That was kind of the stuff that I was reading for my major. Yeah. But I really enjoyed Emerson and Thoreau. Um, I actually really enjoyed Chaucer, um, sure. Shakespeare. Uh, so Chaucer's hilarious. Kind of old classics. Yeah, Chaucer was great. He's really funny. And when you studied it and actually learned what he was actually saying and how witty it was and dark and everything else, it was pretty cool. I imagine you had some good teachers because it took a really good teacher for me to get Chaucer as well. Yeah. Yeah, because it can be a bit, yeah, it's in a whole other language almost. It is. You know, so you have to read through the lines a bit. And you just don't think when you're a kid or even that young that somebody so long ago was so witty and... A bit dirty too. Oh, totally. They were all, they were all dirty. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. Um, so I liked all those guys and um, and a lot of modern um, 
literature as well you know Tony I mean, Rich tw- and 20th century because that was like always a big Steinbeck and you know sort of American the big America writers you know yeah I was Hemingway, on Hemingway. Degree, yeah <laughs> Hemingway is like so fun to read but yeah I know what you're saying yeah uh Hemingway was and more after I left um I read a lot of Hemingway a movable feast is one of my favorite books um it's F Scott Fitzgerald was yeah. one of my favorites so what's the really really dep- a call to arms is that the one where he's like yes. running the ambulance and oh that's tough read. Movable Feast is that the one with the bull fighting? And uh, yeah, and, yeah, and it was it was about Paris basically. And when I I, I kind of that got into that when I sort that's of so depressing reinvented too. myself. Yeah, ex- he loves the woman and he yeah. can't have her. You know? I mean, they're all kind of depressing. Yeah. All those guys. He drank a lot, you know. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I think that's why I liked Hemingway is because he liked wine. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, I cut you off though. But that's you right. were You were uh, so postgrad then you said you were uh, I so at Stanford I didn't really know what I wanted to do and every, they had this it was called um what was it CPPC the career planning and placement center and this was before the internet really um nobody people only the rich kids which there were plentiful at Stanford but had their own computers sure, sure. and Stanford was Mac orientated which was unusual at the time because everybody else was on HP or whatever yep. um so I did have my first exposure to Mac but I didn't have an email address until I left university so I would go to the career planning and placement center and they would post job postings so most of the people who were pre-med were already on their way to medical school pre-law they were you know pre-business all of that um, big headhunting area for investment banking. Uh, and in my day, because technology was still burgeoning, at least the dot-com side of it, a lot of people went into finance, probably to be able to pay to off their student f- yeah, loans. To fund, to fund all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I, none of that appealed to me. So I would just go look at the things that were kind of different and interesting. Mm. And so the, a lot of them were kind of sales orientated. So one job I almost took, and it actually offered more money than the one I ended up taking, was for Quaker Oats, you know, the oatmeal company. Yeah. And, and it was being a business development, you know, basically yeah. traveling around opening accounts for Quaker Oats. Yeah. Um, and then I found one that was founded by Stanford students. Most of them were, one was a um, humanities major, one was a philosophy major, one was a history major. The woman that ran the marketing department had studied English at Stanford like myself. So they were selling um, derivatives trading systems and risk management systems, which I didn't even know what that meant. Sounds exciting. Yeah. But I thought, wouldn't it be cool to get into a small company at kind of the that starting time? That good, yeah, yeah. So I, I put in a pre-interview, you could submit your interview for pre-screening to see if, or your CV resume, we called yes, it. Yes, resume. And uh, <laughs> to see if, if you fit the bill that they'd even waste time interviewing you. And I didn't pass that. I was like, okay, well, whatever. A few weeks later, I saw they were still advertising, so I put my name in again, and they interviewed me and gave me the job. So, um, you know, if it, at first you don't yes, succeed, yes, try, try don't. again. Yeah. So I joined as marketing, and that was all right, but I heard them talking about how they wanted to hire someone in New York to be sales support because obviously selling financial software, they needed a front office in New York that were, was dealing with clients and out there actually closing the business. So I'd never been to New York, and I said, oh, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. And it was one of the hardest and best decisions I ever made because, you know, Stanford was a very protected environment. Yeah, I was going to say it'd be really different. And Portland was a small town, really, not so much anymore. So I ended up in, you know, the Big Apple yeah. without any preparation for it. Um, but I ended up 
becoming a runner because of it because I didn't know anybody and I didn't have anything to do so on weekends I'd go to Central Park and join these races and um, New York has a way of sort of like forcing you to to do something <laughs> to deal yeah you know yeah it's just like constant it's crazy uh, how long were you in New York for uh I was there four years but two different times yeah so the sort of long story short story of the whole software side was uh every time there was an opportunity to go somewhere else and open something new I put my hand up because it was a way to discover the world. Yeah. So they were going to send me to Brazil and open an office there because the CEO and original founder had a personal interest in Brazil. And obviously, Sao Paulo had relevant financial markets. But as they set the company up to go um, public and they brought in sort of, you know, career directors and people long in the tooth with experience in business, things started to change. And the guy that came in to be president pulled me aside and said, I know this guy's promised to send you to Brazil. And if you really want me to, I will, but I'm pretty much throwing you out of a plane without a parachute. We're not going to succeed with an office down there. He said, so why don't you go over to London? We've got a great small office. This guy called Steve Husk was a, you know, an amazing, the English sell really well in my experience. So yeah, he was yeah. a great um, sales leader. And, and he's like, why don't you go to London? So you wrote over there and learn from Steve. So I thought, okay, easy. I don't have to learn Portuguese. Yeah, so I ended yeah. up in London and kind of... Um, then went back to New York and London. I worked for a few companies over that period. Um, but going to London is where I really, really, my interest in wine peaked because it's a city where you can get wine from anywhere. I started to take a lot of what would be similar to WSET classes, but it's yeah. not, they weren't classes necessarily towards gaining a degree. It was no, just No, it was just more learning. interest and passion. And, and know, um, yeah. there was a guy called San- Sandy Lecky, who I think is still going today, and Lena Inger, who recently passed. And I was always the first one there and asked the most questions and just loved it. I ended up even traveling with them in the Hunter Valley years I'm gonna later. I'm going to ask you about that off air. Yeah. Remind me because I think I might have an interesting story. I think it's the same two people. I just was Somebody was talking about with all these MWs were in town. Yeah. But just in case it isn't, and anyway, I wouldn't ask on the recording, but there's a kind of a crazy story. But anyway, uh, that makes total sense. I mean, uh, London... Yeah, it's a, a bit of a wine capital in that sense. But, you know, there's so many people that come out of that. So many wine writers come out of that. You know, exactly. just following on Twitter, like you just see how many are London based. Um, not a market I've cracked yet, but anyway. <laughs> well, and you're so close to all these wine growing areas. Yeah, so yeah. any time I travel for work or you know the cheap Ryanair flights for a weekend getaway, I'd always look up you know what wines were grown there, or at least the variety, or what to look for, what what food came from the region, and I'd go, and that would just be what I'd immerse myself in. Yeah. Um, and I did that for a few years until I realized that I liked selling things, I liked talking to people, I liked relationships, I liked travel. I wasn't interested in finance at all, except having enough money to, you know, pay my way and mm. afford to go out to restaurants and learn about wine. Finance didn't interest me other than, you know, knowing how to use what was a really basic cell phone at the time and my computer. Or so tech. you mean tech didn't you know, Well, yeah, sorry, technology yeah, didn't yeah. interest me. Finance didn't interest me. Um so I thought, well, what are you doing? you know? And and I had had the privilege of attending a seminar when I was eighteen for young American students with promise or whatever. I don't know how I got my way in there. but And I remember Maya Angelou, who was one of my favorite authors at the time, got up and spoke. And I'll never forget her. Cool. Yeah, it was, it was, it's called um, The Banquet of the Golden Plate, and they still do it today. And basically, it's, it's a weekend where they honor Americans, not necessarily Native Americans, but um, of, of great walks of life. You know, So my year, there was Michael Jordan, Ronald Reagan, um, Maya Angelou, um, 
Gene Siskel, um, Herschel Walker, who's a famous football player. But anyway, there are all these people. Um, and, um, and some of the, you know, Ronald Reagan didn't give a, get up and give a speech. But, you know, you were kind of having lunch. I sat and ate lunch at Comiskey Park, which doesn't exist anymore. It used to be oh, a yeah, baseball yeah. stadium with Gene Siskel, who doesn't exist in human form. You know, yes, he's passed. Yes. But it was super cool. But anyway, Maya Angela got up and and she said, you know, because everyone there was successful. That was the one thing they had in common, whether it was philanthropy or politics or athletics or um, the guy who was the head of the New York Ballet was there. Like, it, it, they were all successful in one way or another. And she said, if you want to be successful, find something you love doing dedicate your energy and your soul to it and you'll find success mm. and it haunted me for a long time because then I went on to Stanford and I was in this you know this world of all these super overachievers many of whom had been you know gone to um, boarding schools to prepare for this kind of education and had been away from home and all this stuff and I was just swimming in the sea of people who seemed to understand what they wanted to do to be successful and I had no idea so I wore it on my shoulders for a long long time and I could always hear her saying this and I and I had a high school teacher who actually wrote the recommendation that probably got me into Stanford who had said something because she shared it with me along the lines of Jen stood out to me as a student who will do something different and at the time I thought it was supposed to be a call to philanthropy that you know I go work Greenpeace or Mm. you know go um at work with refugees or something like that and so I had you know that on the other shoulder so I had this woman who as a 16 year old thought that I would go on to do something she actually said different but I thought that makes a difference and the two things are kind of the same but different and then I had this woman saying you know more or less follow your heart and you'll find success and there, there are two you know there were there were just things that um haunted me until I finally yeah you found they it. probably saw you weren't gonna be the type of person who just would like sit in a job and walk up the ladder or go up the ladder that you were gonna you were different you were gonna challenge people and uh I can see that haven't known you for 15 minutes <laughs> <laughs> well I didn't see it for a long time yeah. until one day I thought I, I you know could hear my angel I still see her like she was there mm. right in front of me and I don't have the greatest memory but and I thought you know what I owe it to myself to try and find a job that wakes wakes me up before my alarm that I'm excited about going to that where I have an opportunity because of you know the way I feel about my my work and and whatever it is my calling that I can influence other people and help them find happiness and I said you know this might be your last shot because I was you know pushing 30 at that age at that stage and I so I thought well what what do you what do you enjoy and it was food wine and travel so I thought all right well I used to holiday in a part of the southwest of France and I got to know the wine area a little bit it's called Gaillac and I'd met a family, and so I wrote to them and said, hey, I've got a place to stay. Can I come and work harvest with you? And they said, oh, yeah, we remember you. I visited there seven or eight times. In fact, I had my 30th birthday with a bunch of friends out at their winery. And and um, so I quit my job, bought a lemon of a car that got me there, but that was about it, and um, set out to head to the southwest of France. Two days before I left, I got an email saying, oh, we've just sold our vineyard, and it's now all going to be machine harvested, so there's nothing really for you to do for us and I was just thinking great what am I going to do but I read further and they said and this is where fate intervened they said but we took the liberty of talking to our neighbor and friend who does some consulting for us Patrice Lescaré and he would be happy to have you if and he speaks great English and if if you if you're interested so I wrote to Patrice he said yeah show up and that was the changing point because he's 
he works in an area that's not very well known internationally, but he's um, a leader in, you know, biodynamics, um, my kind of natural wine. He's a character like, and, and so I ended up going to work for him and that opened up um, by going to work, it meant picking grapes and eating a lot of cheese and, yes. but I'd hang out in the winery at the end of the day and wash buckets and just, I just want to be involved with it. And so he introduced me to people. Um, he introduced me to wines I wasn't familiar with. I mean, I, I credit him for me discovering natural wines, but they weren't marketed as such then. They no. were just what I, I view to be authentic wines. Mm. Um, and, and I discovered Shannon. I discovered, you know, some of my first great Burgundies. Um, what, um, what, yeah, what were you guys making though? Uh, uh, most of it are ancient varietals. So there are things, uh, like Syrah, Brokal, Mozac, uh, Muscadel, but he, um, is a bit of a rabble rouser. And so he kind of would defy the AOC and also make wines that were van de table because he'd plant, he planted, um, Petit Manson, he planted, um, Petit Sarai planted um, all kinds of things. So that was considered just table wine because, because it, it, do, it, it doesn't have grapes in, that... But they were like unbelievably yeah. made. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably, you know, especially talking to friends or Psalms in America, right now the most interesting part of France is like all these people are just saying like, well, these are great grapes just because it's not, you know, necessarily part of what's traditionally come out of that that should be $100 a bottle. You know, there's these village wines and things like that that you're like, well, this is awesome and affordable and really interesting, you know. And so it's pretty early in the game for that for you to be, yeah. you know, doing that kind of stuff. That's great. And I, I think, you know, it was a segue kind of to ending up in New Zealand where we're not bound by those confines of tradition and regulation. So you can actually conceive of an idea or a grape you might want to try and people would say you're crazy but you tried anyway and then talking to the right guy you prove them wrong <laughs> yeah exactly so um but it was just it was it was magic and I was hooked and I so when I went into wine I thought that I would go learn how wine was made so that I could sell it because sales was my background yeah and so I it I did harvest from that first one was 2002 and then I did three in 2003 and three in 2004 and it was in 2004 when I came here to Hawks Bay and worked for Doug Weiser and I remember at the time I was planning to go back to New York and invest in a vineyard in um uh on the island and Long Island and open a wine bar in Brooklyn and so that was my plan and I remember Doug saying well I would offer you a full-time job but you want to go do that and I said you know, at the time, that's what I wanted. And then I went and uh, spent four months on my friend's sofa in Manhattan and decided that wasn't at all what I wanted, partly because I wasn't interested in Long Island Merlot. Yeah. And also, did I really want the hospital life? I, I didn't think so. And I'd really enjoyed... We're crossing a lot of paths that are similar. <laughs> yeah. I, I enjoyed... Um, I like getting up at four in the morning versus staying up till four in the morning nowadays. I mean, I've done both at different yeah. periods of my life. But I... Um, so I... And, and I was taking all my life, you know, I was going to invest everything I had and it just didn't feel right. And so I, I walked away and, um, in the end that, that friend did open the wine bar and I think it lasted a couple of years, mm. but, uh, at the, so then Doug died. So it was at the time that Doug died that I was doing this. It was October of 2004 mm. that I was in New York pursuing this idea. And 
then it was by Christmas that I knew I didn't want to do it. So two things happened. One was I had applied for an internship in South Africa because I'd spent a lot of time when I was selling financial software in Johannesburg. And I discovered South African wine and South African food and the nice South African people and all of that. And I was just intrigued by going back to learn about wine there. So I got a letter saying I'd been accepted as a student. So I was offered an um, internship there. And then Adrian Baker, who worked with Doug at Craigie Range, wrote back to me saying, I know it's not that glamorous to go back somewhere a second time, but if you don't have anything hooked up, it would be great to have someone who knew Doug come back this year, you know, yep. just for some continuity and moral support, I guess. And so I thought, well, that's fate intervening. I'm going to go to South Africa and then I'll go back to Craigie. And by that time, I knew that I wanted to be a one. So what are the, har- the harvest times? For um, uh, South Africa is sort of January through, okay. similar to the hunter. So January yeah. through March. Okay. Yep. And, um, and then Hawks Bay, obviously you start a little bit earlier, but you, it, I agreed to come by April 1st and that was, that was fine. I missed a bit they, of Chardonnay. They knew you could hit the ground running. Yeah. They probably weren't worried about that. They used to, um, press. And there is always those kind of hires, you know, you're going to hire some people early and some people to hang into the, into the late part of harvest. Yeah. And, uh, so that was 05 vintage? Yeah, yeah, which was, it was hard. It was a small harvest. Yep. So there were a lot of winemaker interns with not a lot to do. So we probably, poor Adrian, we probably um, partied a bit more than, than we needed to that harvest because there wasn't a whole lot of wine to be made. But, um, but it was good. And I then um, realized that I loved New Zealand. Well, I realized two things. One, you know, I started to understand that for most winemakers, not all of us, but I'd say, you know, more than 60%, a big part of what we do is selling wine. Yeah. You know, that, and, and some, some aren't of that ilk and that's fine. Then there's support, you know, that you work it out that you have somebody else who is. And, but when you're not making it, you're out talking about it. And by talking about it and sharing your love for it and your ideas and your enthusiasm and your, your knowledge, then you're effectively a vehicle for sales. Yeah. I mean, that's not why you do it, but that's the result. And if that isn't the result, then you're just making it and it's not being sold and the business goes under. So it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's still, it's not that it's not altruistic. Like you, you go talk about it cause you love it, but if it doesn't sell, then you're End of the day, yeah, sitting in a cellar yeah, full yeah, of wine that y- yeah. you and your um, colleagues are going to drink and it just doesn't work. So, so I realized that I could achieve, you know, what I wanted in terms of using my previous skill set. And, but that I wanted to sell wine that I was a part of. Well, that was what I was going to say is like, how exciting would it be for you? Uh, and I think I was probably similar and I have a similar story way before I, you know, was confident enough or had enough wine to like, that was all going to be just my job to sell my wines. I wanted to come sell. I thought I'm going to go to a place where I, I love the wines and I'm going to feel so happy and different to be out in the market selling these wines too. And that's what it was from the beginning. So I could see the draw to say, like, you probably had known already that you were going to go out and have to sell and put, you know, you got to stand confident behind that, too. And um, probably a lot easier than selling Long Island Merlot. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the other end of the spectrum, you know, Uh, to go to New York or somewhere, a major market and uh, and have have to sell that instead. But yeah. so this is 2005 now? Yeah. Okay. And more harvests? Yeah. So then I went and uh, did a stint in Oregon, which made sense because... Easy to do. Visas were easy. Yeah, yeah. Family nearby. And, but I still came back to New Zealand. So I worked harvest in 2006 and then I had a job for a year there that was just sort of a 
stopgap and I came back and worked at uh, Muddy Water in Canterbury which was sort of an ambition because I'd approached Belinda Gould when I started out in 2003 asked started out in New Zealand asking for a job and she so when I was in France backtracking to Gaillac so I, my, I was there in 2002 and I knew that I wanted to do a harvest in the southern hem- hemisphere and New Zealand Australia and South Africa at that time were the three that featured wasn't looking at South America and I decided on New Zealand because I hadn't been here but the way the country sounded reminded me of where I grew up mm. you know with mountains and lakes and outdoorsy people and I sort of put that on a back burner for 10 years when I was living the city life and you know the closest I came to trees was jogging in Central Park or walking through a common in London so I'd, I'd left a, a part of me aside for a while and I think I felt that I needed that to be healthy was there and ever whole. An, a random question was there ever an opportunity to come sell software here in Auckland or Wellington? Uh, no, not really. Not a big enough market. Yeah. Australia. Australia. Yes. Though, yeah. 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 Australia was big. Um, but no. Um, yeah. So I wrote about, I didn't, I'd say at least 50. I usually say 70, but you know, it's fun to exaggerate, but at least 50 letters to wineries in New Zealand. And at the time I called it the ignorance of bliss or, or the bliss, bliss of, of ignorance, ignorance. the yeah. bliss of ignorance, because I thought, oh, well, you know, I've got a good education. I've got life experience. I'm really interested in this. I'm hardworking. Why wouldn't anyone hire me? And then seven or eight years later, I became that person that hired people. And I'd think long and hard about people w- presenting what I was presenting. And I was just naive to the fact that just because you're I think you, keen doesn't necessarily look, mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, looking at it, you would probably... It would have to be contacts and friends and say like, no, they're good. That's who I, you know, have helped at least hire people and uh, in the wine industry. And there's something to be said for getting a, if you want a fresh apple, get it off the tree. And somebody who's just like, go clean that, you know? Yeah. And you're right there. You know, while there's life experience, there could be baggage there too, you know? And there could be, you know, we've all had people that have been hired uh, that have trying to tell you how to make your wines during harvest and and uh you know i haven't personally had that experience i've worked with some winemakers working for bigger wineries and you know they always get the fresh-faced young or you know maybe half a dozen um harvests under their belt and then they want to be like we should set up this trial and this and that and this way we did it back in california or france or whatever it is probably more france (laughs) yeah yeah and it can go wrong so uh but you're not naive to think that. I mean, I would I would have thought the same stuff. But. Well, looking back now, though, after having spent four years in England and working, you know, with predominantly English and or European people in an English office, you know, we'd go down to the Hungdong Quarter after work and have a couple pints together. It was the whole cultural experience. And, and I remember when I used to make calls, someone would say, hello, this is Joe. And I'd be, hi, Joe, how are you? And he cut right to the chase. But that's mm. not what the English do. They, Hey Joe, oh how was your weekend? Mm. And oh, did you catch the rugby? And you talk for you know pleasantries for like five minutes, and then you'd ease into business. And that's what Europeans did, and particularly the English. Whereas Americans, everyone's busy, nobody has time. So you just, as a courtesy, respect to that person, you you just cut to the chase. Like mm. I know you're a busy person, so I'm not gonna you know. So I'd sort of forgotten that. And and there's a, a side. So there's there's what we know as Americans you know, being at least from America or spending time there, that we understand it. And we understand that that assertiveness and that, you know, the um, you can be anything you want and, you know, that whole American dream. 
is actually a positive thing, but how the rest of the world sees it, it could be like, whoa, yeah, ambitious, <laughs> like, yeah, like, whoa, I don't, what am I going to do with you when you get here? You know, yeah, like, yeah. It, so I'd forgotten that because I was so excited about an opportunity. So I think it was probably that, um, that American dream, like I can do anything if I believe in it. It was a little bit off putting for people because they're like, whoa, mm. you know? So, um, but eventually, um, George Darris at Villa Maria, at the time, his wife used to help him screen um, CVs, and he had piles like no, maybe yes, and mine came up as he told me later, and it went into the no, and she put it into the maybe, and then anyway, so she encouraged him to have another look, and so that was the first harvest job I got in New Zealand, and and in was Marlboro? Uh, yeah in Marlboro yeah. in 2003, so it was a, quite a small harvest um, that vintage there. I mean, I think we only did. I want to say three thousand ton, something very small for for, for, that. for what they do today. Yeah, yeah. But that was just the door that I needed open. And then I went on and traveled around. That's where I saw Belinda Gould, who had tried to give me a job. Because in those fifty to seventy letters, Muddy Waters. It's now part of Greystone. Okay, yeah. And she's a brewer, but at at the time, half the people would say thank you very much, we've already sorted our team. And I know what that means. Usually they haven't, but they weren't interested. Some wouldn't reply at all. A couple said, oh, I'd really like to hire you, but you need a bit more experience. And that was Belinda. And she said, I'd really like to hire you, but you know, I need someone to run the night shift yeah, and yeah. you haven't really done much. And I prioritized sending letters to people whose wines I'd actually tried. And I discovered Muddy Water Wines in London. I really wanted to work there. And so I opened with that. So she's like, okay, this, this lady's kind of at least trying. So anyway, that was 2003. So I went and visited her. She said to me, oh, um, Mike Wiersing went to Stanford. You know, he, he lives just half hour away. You know, do you want me to try and see if he has time for you to visit? So I went and saw Mike. And then she said to me, oh, Helen Masters, because Helen used to work for Belinda in California. They worked at Sonoma Cotrera together. And she said, Helen Masters is about your age. You should go stay with Helen. And I'm kind of going, well, <laughs> is Helen okay with this? So yeah. she rings up Helen, because I said I was going up to Martinborough. And so Helen and Ben put me up for the night. And then Helen said, oh, you're going up to Hawke's Bay. My brother-in-law makes wine at Craigie Range. She want me to call and see, you know, and she rang. And they said, oh, the in-laws are visiting, but we can put you on a, you know, a mattress in front of the fire if you want to come for the night. So that's where I met Adrian. And I said, oh you know, when do you guys, I went and visited and I said, oh, when do you guys look at applications? And, um, and he said, uh, about now. And so anyway, it was, I just needed that one opportunity and then I kind of found my way and then another but door see, opened. Now, and we'll go back to, I guarantee though, you were probably trying to get it, trying to, you know, the whole time, what do I do next? What do I do next? So some of that, uh, Americanism helped, I guess, you know, because, yeah. but, uh, but the, uh, yeah, that you're right though. The Kiwi thing of like, oh no, just go this way, and this is how you'll end up. And I can remember being astounded, and still am a bit, with like friends and coworkers who seemingly get these amazing jobs, and they just kind of cruise into them. And and like I, I haven't still haven't had that experience, you know. And uh, but I think it is maybe it was me. I don't know what it is, but. Uh, I think it is a little bit of that, oh, it'll be all right, and, you know, we'll just try this place, and then, you know, if you're good, you go to the next place, and, and uh, so a little combination of both, I guess. Yeah, you know? I think that's probably where the, yeah, the two cultures started to become more at one within me, and now I, I've i always considered myself a Kiwi winemaker, because this is where I've, me too. I've worked, yeah. you know, I, people think I'm an American winemaker, because originally I was American, I mean, I still have an American passport, but I consider myself, I have a New Zealand passport, and 
I intend to live here. You know, I can't think of any reason why I have a New Zealand husband. We love where we live. We love what New Zealand has to offer. I love being in the New Zealand wine industry. So for me, um, I, you know, this is home. And I think that's when um, I started to recognize that mm. I think there are places in life and people in life that bring out the best in you. And, and there's not really anything you can do to control that. It's just, it's connections with people and it's a, a feeling about a place. And for a lot of time, I was putting myself around people in places that were fine, but they weren't bringing out the best in me or helping me find that in myself. And then when I came to New Zealand, it was just natural. Yeah. So like I felt, I felt safe. I felt healthy. Um, I felt just like I could relax and, and, and be myself. And maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe it was that time in life. Maybe it's because I was pursuing something that I really was passionate about. But I think a lot of it was you just find a place that works for you and that's probably the place you should spend some time. I always feel quite good when I get off the plane and land back here, you know. There is, it's like a, you know, outside of all the vivid colors and beautiful scenery and all that and great people, is there's something about I just feel much more relaxed and able to focus here you mm. know so I, I can agree but I think it's probably all those things too you're you know like you said your experience leading up to that and uh where you're at in life and you know the fortunes you've had or friends you've met along the way as well but um so what year are we up to now we're up uh, to yeah uh, <laughs> 07 now yeah 06? 07 so well we could jump so so the the tying back to muddy water finally in 06 I emailed Belinda and I said, all right, this is all I've done since 2003. When you said I need to go get some experience, what do you reckon? She said, all right, you can come have a crack. And we became very good friends. And she was one of the, uh, after Patrice, she was the next real mentor to inspire me mm. um, and to make me feel like I could do this, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and not just maybe I could do this. It's like, no, you, you've got what it takes. You can do this. And so that was quite a formative harvest for me. And then I ended up... Um, I was going to go back there in 2007, but then I ended up getting a assistant winemaking job at Olson's in Central Otago, and then that segues into where I am now. So Olson's is that contract too? Uh, they, they used to do both. So yeah. they, in the end, kind of to pay the bills, they were doing more contract than they were their own brand. Yeah. But it was a it was a, it was a combination, and then it sold and became Terra Sancta. So I stayed for the first three years, more or less, at Terra Sancta, which was it was exciting to launch a new brand and see things from a different perspective. I didn't realize and that was that young of a brand. I knew, I've, so that, what year was that, like 2010 or? Uh, they bought the business in 2011. Okay. Yeah, so that's pretty, pretty new. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. they, they did rebrand some ones, but so the, there were some ones from the 2011 vintage that went directly to their label. And from 2012 onwards, it was purely, you know, start to finish their, their wines. And but not contracting anymore. Or anything. Very little. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it started to kind of, um, you know, they built their own big winery. They had their own um, plans and ambition, and contract wasn't really a necessity for mm. them. Whereas for Olson's, it was a lifeline. Yeah. Definitely. So I I don't know what the status is today, but yeah, I, yeah. I I think very very little of that anymore. Yeah. Just because it's not part of their and focus. So were you making a lot of other people's wines then? Yeah, too? at the time I was. Um, most of them don't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, a few of them I, I, I make again or, or didn't make for a little bit and then um, relationships were maintained and I'm still well, working with them. Before we get into Volley, I mean, one of the curious, not your reputation precedes you in that, you know, we have some mutual friends and I know you're cool and all that. <laughs> um, but 
one of the reasons why I haven't really talked to anybody from Otago uh, before. I don't think I've had. I mean, I've certainly talked to people who work there and all that, but uh, somebody who's sort of embedded in the industry. And you say I have some maps in the room. I think I need an Otago map to really, you know, get my head around Appalachians a bit more there. I mean, I've drank plenty of Otago wines. I've been to Queenstown half a dozen times and driven around and all that. Um, but yeah, a little bit. It can be like a mystery to people in Hawke's Bay and certainly people in other parts of the world, without a doubt, um, that there's a lot of money down there, kind of some seemingly millionaire's playground, and there's these, these rock star pinots that come out of there and really expensive wines, and then there's um, some stuff we never even get to taste or never get to hear of, and uh, there's, uh, but there's a lot of history down there as well, and I don't know, I guess I'm looking what your experience is, you know, what you've seen happen in this time. And then, you know, sort of come into how you ended up at, at Volley as well, uh, because you guys are doing vineyards from a few different appellations and things. Uh, you know, if I had a Hawks Bay winemaker sitting here, I would probably ask, like, what have you seen happen in the last 10 years? Because so much has happened uh, since, you know, I got here in, like, January of 08. It's changed dramatically, particularly with the GFC and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So, uh, big, long question for you there. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think when I arrived on the scene in 2007, it was still the boom period. So from about 1999, more or less, to 2008, 70% of the plus or minus 2,000 hectares of grapes in Central Otago today were planted. So there was there was a lot happening. And it was when there was the arrival of more winemakers with experience or, or training in winemaking or degree or whatever. So that period was, it was, it was pretty, it was nuts. It was, uh, yeah. it was probably a bit frenetic. Um, and the thing that tied it together was, uh, uh, it's interesting when you say it's a rich person's playground, because certainly Queenstown is that. And there's areas in Queenstown I didn't even know existed where, you know, Kim.com and all these people who have, whatever, you know, yeah, more money yeah. than most small banks. But the wine industry, with rare exception, really wasn't like that. Most of the wines that attracted me to Central Otago were, I mean, certainly maybe some people had to get outside investment, but but it was it was people who wanted this lifestyle and wanted to go to like maybe one of the hardest places in the world to grow grapes and one yeah, of the most I mean, dramatic been, places to grow grapes to be clear it hasn't been my experience yeah. that, but i think there you know i uh i spent some time uh right next to i used to help out with uh desert heart wines yep. they brought them in so and i would visit there in the middle of winter when they're pruning and i just saw that lifestyle and i you know it really hit home for me to stay there for a few days and i sort of you know, and I went visited a few other wineries during the quiet time of year when, you know, it's just really cold and their work's being done. And, you know, these are, that's a whole different kind of farming and all that. So I, I know what you're saying, uh, but some of the perception, either you know, not only from the industry up here, but in the, the, um, in the market might be, oh, well, this is some, you know, gorgeous rolling hill, central Otago, Pinot, you know, and, and sometimes the price reflects it as well. So, uh, but sorry, interrupted you there. Yeah. yeah I- I think um, that what in that frenetic period, which ended in 2008, most would say because of the global financial crisis, some would say because most of the obvious good plantable land was sort of discovered um, with climate change. I think it's <laughs> not all discovered. You know, there's there's still um, progress. But, uh, but the thing that tied all of that together was a community spirit that was started way back 
you know, in the early days when, when Grant, who I work with now, came back. And, and that's always been there. You know, we're a small, I mean, 2,000 hectares is nothing. You mm-hmm. know, there's, there's companies that own that yeah. in New Zealand. So it's always been about um, strength in numbers and about helping each other, about sharing ideas. And um, I mean, our, you know, probably I'm the biggest cheerleader of half of my colleagues down there, you know, constantly telling people to try these other wines. And, and, and it's, um, we challenge each other. We don't all agree wholeheartedly on everything, but, but we respect that. And there's a lot of personality, but not usually a personality that overruns the room. I mean, you know, there's, there, um, there are quite a few people who are very memorable, but it's, it's all based on respect and, and I guess to a degree, it's that old adage, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And, and that's really been the cornerstone, I think, to Central Otago. So coming mm. up to 2009, when that frenetic phase of planting stopped, and there was a bit of, I mean, some might say Darwin, there was a bit of washing out of people who were just, you know, wealthy people who thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a vineyard? And they invested in it and then saw what it really meant. And it wasn't something they were committed to. So, you know, you had some of those go away. Sadly, some of the people who were pioneers and, you know, just couldn't couldn't make it work. So there was, I think, a little bit of a clearing out period and a regrouping. And then there were some, there have been some conscientious new investments, but most of those were built upon people who'd been in the industry quite a while. So they're, they're with knowledge rather than that complete blind pioneering thing that happened um, back During when Grant period. was there. That, yeah. that makes total sense, especially from in more recent years, what I've tasted coming out of Otago, which is pretty scary good, you know. And uh, I don't know, you said Darwin, you know, thinning of the herd or whatever yeah. um, during that, that boom time. And I think that's happened everywhere as well. Like, you know, there's not just millionaires dropping in and thinking they can make money to making wine you know it's it's that's changed a bit um i think we also entered from about 2010 a uh, period of introspection so it wasn't about um reaction it wasn't about doing it was about thinking and it, it was about well what you know what what is this area really trying to say and are we shouting it or are we letting it sing in the background or, you know, so there was a lot of confidence from experience and stepping back from, from of course doing. You, you would have had vine age too, which yeah. is another major, well, that's an, yeah, major, exactly. Another thing. You're only just learning. I mean, we, it's tough when you're sort of in it and I try, I try to remind myself at least once in a while, particularly this happens when I'm overseas is to step back for a second and realize how young everything is here and how new everything is here and how it's happening right now. And that sometimes you just have to say like, well, wait a minute, we don't really know actually what yeah. can work, you know? And I would think Otago, you know, that's the one thing about, you know, that, that could be from me, my experience too, that I've really liking a lot more of the Pinots that I've tasted in recent years because there's vine age there. You know? Yeah. And that's unquestionably a huge factor. And I think there's also, um, it's it's intent it's knowing your intention so if your intention is to make something a volume that's accessible that's um enjoyable that's of good value and highly marketed then then that you should set out on that path if your objective is not necessarily to make the best wine you know the gold medal winning you know trophy seeking wine but to make the most thoughtful wine that expresses a place, Mm. then you set out on that path. Both are very, very valid intentions, but I think there was somewhere in the middle where your intention was one thing, but you were doing another. 
And I think people stopped and said, well, what, what is, you know, and this is a good segue into Valley. What, what is it that we, we want to do with, with these grapes, with this wine, with, with, you know, our collective gathering as a small company. And for us, it's simply to make the best wines from an individual growing area in each individual season. And so we don't really believe in bad, good or bad harvest. I mean, weather's kinder to us in Central than a lot of other places, that's true. But they can be more challenging than others. But we truly, truly believe that if you, your intention is to make the best reflection of that season, then how could it be bad? Yeah. I mean, there might be certain seasons that some people prefer to others, but you're still making the best one you can from that season. And so we, we don't have any doubt about who we are and what we want to be. And that's what drew me to Valley because it was just so obvious that it, it was, it was, it wasn't really about Grant. He's one of the most humble people you'll ever meet. It was about the opportunity to find these great places, which is what he has done and plant in some occasions, the vineyards that we own. And then to just really let that place define the wine. Mm. And I think that coupled with coming of age and knowing that it's not about what you do, it's about how you listen and it's about, it's about acting, not reacting, you know, just because something's happening, you don't have to go do it right away. Like take a step back because usually it sorts itself out mm. or usually sometimes, you know, you, you react and then go, oh, I wish I'd waited a day and I wouldn't have done that. And you just learn through confidence. But the most important thing for me is I think of, um, you know, people talk about is wine made in the winery, is wine made in the vineyard. There's this movement at the moment to try and um, to 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 kind of uh how to um I'm trying to pick the right word here kind of to hide the aspect uh, to hide the existence of a winemaker and i think that there's danger in that because for me wine's about a circle of life and i'm not I've got, i'm a little bit of a residual hippie and i'm not a biodynamicist or anything but i think it starts from above with weather and then it comes into nature with plants and then it comes in um and 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 at that point where it hits the ground humans are involved and then there's humans involved through all of that process and then the most important human is the person who actually opens that bottle and drinks it and then in doing that and then recycling the bottle and feeling good and giving this you know energy back into the cosmos that's completing the circle and it sounds a little hokey but i really believe that and i think yeah. every person involved in that is important so if wines were made in the vineyard then then what am I doing what, what's the winery and I think the important for us and what we do is if you think about it like you know the most important thing is the material and if the material is more than just the grapes themselves it's it's that soil it's that aspect you know it's that planting density it's those clones it's that you know where the sun hits here it's it's all of those things if you if that's what you're really trying to showcase that's important but how many garments have you ever had that weren't kept together by thread. Mm. You don't necessarily want to see the thread, but you want to know that it's there. And so when you go out to dinner, you know, your pants are going to fall off. Yeah. You know what I mean? To me, I think winemaking is this thread that's nearly invisible. You have to look for it, mm. but it's what gives direction and pulls it all together. And, yeah, and probably a valid analogy would be that if you see it too much in the stitch, then somebody's you know is too heavy-handed or it's too clunky or exactly yeah you shouldn't yeah. be able to see it but but it's important for it to be there and i think that that's the role of the winemaker it's um it's about giving direction and and pulling pulling it all together just you know it's a realization it's like just being there to kind of yeah I, jenny i have that conversation with jenny dobson a yeah. lot it's like 
I remember work, you know, work with her about three, four years in. And it was just like, it's really like logistics. Isn't it? It <laughs> like is. It's just getting it done somehow. And then, and she'd be the top of the list of somebody who was just confident and being like, why don't we wait a day and just look at it again tomorrow? You know? And, and of course when you're young, you know, I'm still young, but when I was younger and just, you know, out of EIT or something, I'd be like, Oh man, it's doing this. And what do you, what do we got to do? And just, just wait a second. It's going to yeah. be okay. You know? And, um, no, I think we're really on, you know, it's, it's nice to hear I'm very much on the same page with you on that. So, um, uh, but yeah, so, uh, volleys coming about what year 1998 is when grant started it as a brand and he bought grapes up until well we still buy some grapes but 2003 was when our gibson vineyard first came online so he planted that in around 2000 and he started to make bannockburn wine in around 2001 i think it was or similar time frame mm-hmm. um with purchase grapes and then he was part of the inaugural vintage in the waitaki which was 2004 and for is Osler, are they there too? Osler's in the Waitaki. Yeah. Um, that's probably one of the better known brands aside yeah. from ourselves. I'm just ourselves. trying to think of what else I've had from there because it's pretty. Osler, John Forrest makes a wine from the Waitaki. Okay. Michelle Richardson was in the Waitaki in the early days. Craigie Range went to the Waitaki in the early days. There have oh, been yeah. a lot of people who went. Mm. But the Waitaki is uh, a very challenged climate. And the quality factor that people anticipated because of limestone soils is certainly held to be true, but it's very challenging to even break even, let alone try and make Just a viable business. Just not enough fruit on the vines. Um, yes, because it flowering, the weather's very poor, so you get a, a very poor set in terms of number of bunches. Mm-hmm. And in a big year in the Waitaki, they might raise ninety grams. This year, we had um, on average probably forty gram bunches. So you just can't get a volume um, and proximity. For us, it's quite easy because it's two hours away. They pick all day. It's cold at night. Cover it up. Yeah, well, drive it to us the next my morning. Take on it, which just looking at a map was like it's sort it's of desolate and secluded. And, but yeah. for people then sending it up to Canterbury or up to Marlborough, it's a lot further to go. Mm. Um, and and for a long time everyone had day jobs so the people farming there weren't great farmers they were farmers or they were this or that so there's now and i think grant has a lot to do with it because he stayed in the waitaki buying grapes from people who had nowhere else to sell them um making good wine from it helping to you know build the knowledge that the waitaki even exists Mm. and now there isn't a breed of some people who are serious farmers yeah Yeah. and and it's their day job now and Mm. um and, and it's exciting, and there's a little bit, even though there's only probably 60 hectares of grapes planted there today, um, some things went mothball after people realized in 2008, again, that, you know, with all of those factors of, of volume and set and, and um, isolation that, you know, it's, it's you need, it's got to be even almost more than love. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost got to be like some crazy Craziest, sort of, yeah. yeah. Crazy dedication. Um, going back you know my ears perked up when you said something about uh bunch weight there i'm probably i'm definitely guilty of you know bringing martinborough wines into other markets because you know when when i first discovered martinborough that's what made me move to new zealand was martinborough pinot even though i'm in hawks bay i don't say that too loud (laughs) but um i often get asked well is what's it like compared to otago so this is not only for the listener, but it's also for me as well. Uh, I tend to say, you know, we get that southerly and we have a pretty small crop in Martinborough. We have, you know, darker tannins. We're also slightly probably warmer. We don't have the, the shift in temperature that Otago has. So a, a variety of factors in, in uh, why the wines taste quite different from those two regions. Uh, that said, 
I've had some, you know, Otago Pinots, and I don't know if this is a regional thing or again it's the winemaker and that, you know, you know, uh, carefully stitched uh, wine is that uh, there are some more uh, like the you know, I love the Bendigo has always been. And maybe it is because it's, is it more deep, dark within Darker, your range? Darker, more sunlight, yeah. um, hot, a little bit warmer, thicker skins. Um, That's, you know, but some people might also like, you know, some of your other Appalachian wines. Uh, so without p- painting this big, broad stroke that I normally have to paint because I don't want to get too into Otago when I'm talking about selling my Martin Bropino. Yeah. Um, you know, what would you have to say about at least the Appalachians that you guys are working with all the time? But I think for central Otago, it's the continental climate mm. and that diurnal range. I mean, the sho- soils are schist-based. Um, there's, you know, there's differences in soils in terms of how they were formed, whether it was glaciers or, or river valleys, um, age of formation, all of that kind of stuff. So there's differences in soil, but at the end of the day, you know, the, the bedrock is schist. And then the Waitaki, it's limestone. So the Waitaki is is different to central, certainly. But sure. I think the, for the differences in central Otago... Um, really is it's the only semi-continental climate in in New Zealand. Yeah, and I do talk a bit about that. I said if you're standing in Martinborough, you could watch the clouds pull back and forth off the Rimatakas, and it's a little more crazy weather, whereas maybe Otago, though it goes up and down in temperature, it's more predictable, is it, or? Mm, I don't know if it's that <laughs> predictable, but it is. It's We don't get a lot of rain yeah, generally, yeah. and when we Sometimes we get rain at inconvenient times, but so we don't have a lot of disease pressure. I mean, it is, uh, even though we have our challenges in the middle of it, it is a relatively kind climate to yeah. grow grapes, not to prune. <laughs> yeah, it was a revelation when I I had never, you know, been there and I taste a lot of wines there in 2010. I drove from Christchurch, and I always say this to people about Otago, is you come over that pass and it, I had, my whole experience even in the wine growing areas is kind of cool climate rainforest even though we're protected in hawks bay and to an extent in martinborough and these old river valleys that i passed over there and i thought oh shit i'm in colorado all of a sudden like it's it the shrubbery everything changed it was like this went from green lush to like yeah i feel like i'm in the rockies or something already you know that it it looked like really different and and that right away hit me as like oh okay i'm starting to understand this now you know and that all factors in as well and 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 I think it, the the draw it has to certain people who are adventure seekers, you know, most of us ski or fish or mountain bike or mountaineer or go tramping or or really take advantage of of the nature opportunities that are around us. I've heard some of your uh, wine trips experiences from some of from of the wine writers, like yeah, next thing you know, it was like going straight down a hill on a mountain bike. For- yeah, or bungee jumping, <laughs> yeah. or you know, I mean, it so it is the adventure capital of New Zealand. So there's a draw for the adventurous people and that obviously translates into what they do with wine as well but so all there's so many things it's like there's not one factor but if you look at you know um i I think that landscape makes it difficult to plant at at with the um agenda of volume yeah so that obviously aids quality but also because you can't have volume that raises price everything's more expensive it's more expensive to bottle it's more expensive to get dry goods it's more expensive you know everything it's harder to get labor like it's it's more challenging being in that remote area um but then you know the one thing that you can cite that is different without any question is the climate so what not you know typical crop uh tonnage per hectare for i'll just say your what is the range of peanuts you go? Well, for us, um, mac. Well, generally maximum six and minimum 
one, if you count the white jacket. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Gibson tends to be around four. Um, and as the vines have gotten older, we've had a couple of vintages where they've topped five, and those were very good vintages. In fact, probably they're the healthiest and most balanced. You yeah, know? They, they held it um, well. Yeah. Bendigo and Bannockburn, we tend to uh, crop down to six. I mean, we, we don't go above six tenths of the hectare. Years like this year that just passed, um, we're under that. I think Bendigo was five. So so they range, but we, we manage crop um, a bit as well. A yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, and then I think, but I think people getting older vines and depending on where you farm, it, 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 I think you'll find things that are producing top shelf wines at seven or eight as well. Yeah. If, if they're in the right place with the right vines or right vine age. So yeah, but I, I think the more important thing is that we do manage crop and we ensure that there's balance in every season and sometimes that balance might mean slightly higher which is great because then we have more wine to make yeah, but yeah. sometimes um it will be lower but we'll still go and and thin and and take off shoulders and do what we need to do to make the highest quality even if it means well at three ton a hectare that's pretty tricky to and you know again taking sort of wataki or somewhere else like that out of there would you say you know what's told me is the bunch structure slightly bigger in Otago than it would be in Martinborough or would you I think that's really sub-regional so Gibson yeah. is cooler and later ripening so that's why you get slightly thinner skins very beautiful fine tannin um it tends to be you know in the 100 110 gram category mm. maybe you know and yep. then 90 to 110 depending on where you are in Bannockburn also what clones you have you might be into the 120 to 140 Bendigo sometimes if you're growing able and bendigo it might get up to 200 you know yeah, yeah. so it ranges but um but compared to the y tacky where 90 gram bunches are a big you know that that would be in 2008 the y tacky bunches first time ever i mean sorry 2018 looked like gibston you know mm. and so they were actually looked like the size of a central otago bunch it's never happened and it may never happen again <laughs> um so yeah so that um that also um has a volume play but I, there's just so many different yeah, clones different vo- yeah there's yeah, a lot so, of factors yeah, I but I, but i'd say um it's it's bigger you know too so there's all these little appellations yeah you know, spread out bigger in the sense like martinborough is one little tiny region with this sort of side to Moon road region but overall climate relatively similar i mean they might get hit with frost more on Timona road but you're kind of talking about the same climate where you're you know how far apart are these appellations that you're talking uh, about anywhere from 20 kilometers to 60 and yeah. then from say Cromwell which is sort of the heart of what, well, maybe not the heart as far <laughs> as aesthetically although it is getting anyway it's yeah. sort of the hub of central Otago um to the Waitaki is a couple of hours yeah. but what I think is really exciting now and this is kind of um the I think there's still um a little bit of uh lack of clarity about either between wine writers or between ourselves as to the relevance today of subregions and and how you know someone over on the other side of the world they just know central otago so whether it's alexander or gibson or wanaka or bendigo or bannockburn etc like that's not even what they're thinking of at this time it's hard yeah and is it time to really focus on that and and for us i think it is and certainly for valley it is because that's what we do but what's exciting to me because i do a little consulting for other people so you know if if or or sometimes you know we might um make some wine from another vineyard in Gibson is that within Gibson, which as a subregion has some 
common characteristics, but there are little sites and areas that are well different to each other. Same thing in Bendigo. If you're making it up on the upper terraces or on the flats or the western facing, same with um, Bannockburn. I mean, you've got the Cairnmere side, which has sandy soils, you know, compared to the side with the sluice. I mean, it's just there, even within the subregions, it's there are these differences that it's you can't even. I mean, you could say Bannockburn is this, but then there's Bannockburn's also this, and this part of Bannockburn's this. So it's really exciting because it's not just about you know one growing area; it's understanding site. So there's subregion which I think we get, and we get its relevance, but then within subregions, now there's site. And Absolutely. even in the Waitaki, Waitaki, we work with most years three different vineyards from three different areas. You know, one's more river gravels with um, with limestone. You know, then you've got sort of glacial wash with limestone. Um, and it's amazing how you can see, you know, put three barrels blind and don't say which part it came from, and there's a dramatic difference. So I think that's becoming exciting and it's not like it hasn't been done in other parts of the world yeah, yeah, yeah. but we're, we're actually having the vine age and the experience and enough vineyards and enough experience working with different vineyards within a subregion to actually see it and it's it's really exciting it's a really tough question the whole marketing thing and going into wine writers i i'm at i'm like at a not an existential moment but i'm at a moment now where i'm like what is it you know you want to submit to wine writers you want to get a nice review you want but i don't know how much there's so much out there people aren't reading magazines as much anymore um but i did have a you know a great experience which pulled it all together for me in volley was that great write-up that jeff kelly did on it was about a year year and a half ago and he literally went through all the wines and a little bit of the story about grant and and so that's like to me the best case scenario unfortunately i don't know how many people read that you know yeah. and 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 that except for really really passionate people about wine and even other producers and stuff um and there is there might be some truth that that yeah the, you know the message is a little easier for somebody to take in and it's just otago or whatever you know it's particularly when you're on the other side of the world and you have to show them where new zealand is <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know so but i you know i tend to side with you in the sense that like well you're the one who's gonna have to go out and sell it and if you talk like you're talking to me right now they're going to feel the passion. They're going to taste it. And then they're going to taste how good the wines are. And they're, it's going to stick with them. And yeah, maybe they only buy one or two, but then they're going to say, well, didn't you have this other subregion? And, and, uh, I certainly think we can handle that within New Zealand and, and possibly even Australia, uh, where they have a better understanding of where things are and that it's a continental climate and that Otago is its own special thing. Um, but yeah, I think you just kind of have to go forward with what works for you, and and it's tough to second guess. And uh, but I suppose you're in also in the job of um, you know getting everybody together for Otago as well, you know, and critical mass and all that type of stuff. So I don't know, how's it going? <laughs> yeah, I mean, for us, it's um, because of the way that Grant sort of set up his his vision and path for Valley in terms of having these subregional wines. Um, we're a great gateway to Central Otago at a premium level. Granted, you know our wines are um, sixty nine dollars a bottle, so yeah. um, so people come and they taste with us, and they can see through the eyes of one producer and one vintage because we always show the same vintage of Pinot that you know 
the true differences in the subregions, or at least through our expression, and they can see the seasons. So then I often encourage people like, oh, if, if this Gibson wine really resonated for you, you should go um, check out Colpit or yeah. Brennan. And oh, you, you enjoyed the Bendigo. Well, you know, to me, the benchmark for Bendigo is Quartz Reef or Rudy Bauer or, oh, you know, the Waitaki. Oh, well, you know, you should go try Oslo River Tea and, and, and see if, if you're feeling that same pull to that wine, then it probably is something about the place and the nature of that area and what it's prominent characteristics might be um if not it might 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 be the people because again you know you you can't take out take away the human interaction with these grapes and i say that because we do a fruit exchange with burn cottage where they take uh, a representation of our gibson vineyard and make a wine from it very much the way that they make wine they choose their own picking decision and we do the same thing with their fruit from Loburn. And I think we hope if we carry on doing it, this is the fifth, sixth year that we've done it. Oh, okay. Um, five of them in my time and, and one preceding me. And we hope that in time, the place will sing louder than the people. In the early days, you could kind of see the people. And that makes sense because, you know, we'd never made one from yeah, that site before. That out, yeah. Know? And so, um, but the fact that there were differences obviously shows that there is something in and the individual interpretation. And, th- and that's what's exciting because it's about us and, and our, our way of the way we feel about this place. And we try really hard to, to let the place lead the dance, but at the same time, we're an active partner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if your partner is a strong partner and is willing to follow, you're going to be a great, you know, you know you're going to win Dancing with the Stars. If your partner is tripping you up all the time, mm. you're going to get thrown out the first week. So, so you're, the partner, even if it's a silent cool, partner, is cool still, learning curve, though, still because playing you guys are. Yeah, you know, just what happened? Yeah, what'd you do that? You know. Well, and that's the great thing about Grant is he's always encouraging of experiments. We're always doing trying something. It's a little thing. Like at the moment, we're working a lot about, um, particularly with Bendigo, how how we use whole bunches. It's not so much about the percentage, although that plays a role. But you know, when we press it, how we manage them. Do we do pump overs? Do we do punch downs? You know, just different things. And every year, you know, orange one's a big thing for us. Where every year we're trying something to learn something more about making skin ferment white wines so and grant he could easily just rest on his laurels but that's not who he is i mean i don't get that vibe from volley at all. <laughs> which like, is great for me because very, yeah you would keep you so interested well because i don't think I, I i could be in an environment where it's like okay these are valley wines this is how we make them yep. you know do your job collect your paycheck just make sure we don't go off the course well before i let you run off to your tasting yep. that i'm going to join you on really quick can you name all the Valley wines for us? So sure. That, you know, so um, Pinot Noirs, we make Valley Gibson, we, which is from vineyard that we own. We make Valley Bannockburn, which is from a cool site in Bannockburn. We now lease that vineyard and farm it ourselves. Uh, we make Valley Burn Cottage, which is a sort of, there's only about 100 dozen made, but that's that fruit exchange yeah. that we do, which is a Loburn subregion, so another subregion in our, in our quiver. We make Valley Bendigo from Chinaman's Terrace, which is a vineyard that's farmed exclusively for us. It's about a four-hectare site. And then we make Valley Waitaki, which is predominantly now from a vineyard that we own and farm. And we do sometimes have, because of the nature of the yes. lack of volume, yes. a couple of other vineyards that Grant's worked with throughout the years that may or may not feature in the wine. Uh, we like white wine as well. Yes, I've had a lot of those good white wines. Uh, Pinot Gris sort of a huge focus for us in Gibson, both what I call the classic, which is white in color and what you would expect from a Pinot Gris, and the orange wine, uh, which we make from the same fruit but entirely different technique. And then we make Rieslings from the Waitaki, which are really about the season. So every year 
we, we have a choice. We could either try to make a consistent wine that was very much the same as, very similar in character to the one we did last year, or we can just say, well, this is the Y Techie after all. This season through us this, so we're gonna make the best reasoning we can from that. And that's what we do. So the reasoning's about the season, the Pinot Gris is about the technique, and Pinot's totally about the site. And then we've started to make a tiny bit of Chardonnay from the Waitaki, which is, again, about place. Yeah, it's uh, very exciting. Unfortunately, it's hard for us to get a volume where, and, and we don't even get to make it every year, but yeah. um, but it's something we love doing. And Chardonnay's fun to make. Chardonnay on limestone. It's, mm, it's pretty wow. exciting stuff. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, shit, I could probably talk a lot longer, but we better let you go. Um, thanks for doing this. Oh, and, my pleasure. Thanks uh, for having me over uh, coming out to we we call this part the desert in hawks bay out in the gilla gravels <laughs> and the bridge pot triangle coming out to the desert from havelock thanks and uh do you got any well, i'll talk to you later about any twitter handles or social media we should probably say yeah. or just the website but you can go ahead and say yeah that. uh it's valley wine is our dot, handle dot com uh valley wine is the yeah v-a-l-l-i yeah v-a-l-l-o-i wine is our handle i guess i'm not yeah. the social media queen and then valleywine.com is okay. our website oh there'll be some people listening in some other countries so. fortunately we have someone who's really good at social media <laughs> that's and that's good. hollis not me all right cheers thanks thank you well that was too easy one of the easier interviews uh, for you, those of you guys who listen to the show. Sometimes you know we got to ask a lot of questions, and I got to pull and pry. And uh, Jen was just really easy to talk to. Had a great story, and um, yeah, did most of the work, which was great. Uh, good way for me to ease back into the season and get my game back up for when I went down to the Organic Wine Growers Conference. So thank you for doing that to Jen. Uh, we'll we'll have all the uh, social links and website and all that in the show notes. So just go to that. But you know, I'm sure if you just Google Volley Wine, they've got their do their thing on Facebook and Instagram, and uh, yeah, check out their website. And if you're in uh, Queenstown and you can get so lucky as to do a tasting with them definitely try to do it winter time here in hawks bay the fire is on my lazy cat is sitting by the fire sebastian we're trying to keep warm and uh yeah it's just a, a cruisy time of year here getting things ready for bottling and uh real excited about what's coming up in the next few weeks for you guys on this podcast so stick with us and we'll catch you again soon. Don't forget kariwine.com and decibelwines.com. Use the promo code DBPODCAST. Talk soon. Cheers.